You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Today, we are talking about the Bible and orthodox faith. Not orthodox like the correct way of believing, like orthodoxy and heterodoxy, but the Orthodox Church, which is comprises of a lot of uh, a lot of people. I don't know how. Do you know how big the Orthodox Church is? Pete? I think there are seven. There are seven. Yeah. Yeah. So they've, they've no, no, really it's, no, no. Dwindled. It's more than that. I'm thinking of some <laughs> Presbyterian denominations. I don't know. No, oh. it's it's definitely more. Than, it's big and it's also old. That's it sort of the main thing. It's been around for a old. long time. Very old. And so we're talking to Brad Jerzak, who's a reader in the Orthodox Church, but also editor-in-chief of CWR Magazine, a faculty member, does a lot of teaching, and has written a book called The More Christ-Like God. So we had him on today to talk about his Orthodox faith and his journey through other denominations as a pastor through the years and what led him to the Orthodox Church. Yeah, and we've been wanting to have him on for a while, right? I mean, this is... Brad, Brad's been on the list for a while. He's been on the the, the coveted... The list. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a Netflix show, but anyway. <laughs> the the list. list. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is, what I, I've known Brad for quite a while now, and that book is, I think, a wonderful book, A More Christ-Like God, but I really appreciate... First of all, the interview, Brad is very, very clear in answering some, I think, questions that I think a lot of our listeners will want to hear answers to that are different from answers they're used to hearing. And I'll just leave it at that, about the Bible and Jesus and all sorts of stuff. So, And I've, I've gotten a lot. I'm not Orthodox myself. I never will because I don't believe in standing for two hours during a church service, which is what they do. But I have a bad knee. I can't. God doesn't want me to be Orthodox because I have a bad knee. But God understands. Yeah, no, but I, I do appreciate, you know, Jared, you've, you've obviously had some contact too with orthodox thinking but it's it's a it's just a different way than a lot of us are used to thinking about the gospel and things that have really touched me from that tradition are things like mystery and a view of the bible that's not inerrantist or biblicistic but very very ancient and i yeah, i like that it's it's sort of enlivening to me so you know we're really pumped to have Brad on and i think you'll really really like this episode yeah i like that you know in the orthodox church they seem to have missed some of the trappings of the western church and i'm sure they have their own trappings but it's been refreshing to see they like miss the enlightenment yeah Right, exactly. <laughs> Which is sometimes a very good thing. You know? yeah. Actually, that's not true, because we'll get to a point where Brad says some things that's clear that they didn't, but they're just not beholden to it, let's say. Right, yeah, they don't have it in the, in the mechanics of how they think about the Bible. That's a good way of putting it, yeah. All right, well, let's get to this conversation. Let's do it. There's a three-legged stool of interdependent authority, all pointing to Jesus Christ, and that is the Scriptures, the Church, and the Holy Spirit. If you try to prop up your knowledge and convictions about Christ on any one of those legs, you're going to be way off balance. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. 
Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Hey, Brad, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you. So uh, tell, hey, listen, you're probably really famous in Canada. Well, I'm so famous, I'm infamous. Yeah. What, just tell us a little bit about, just briefly, who you are, and because and you made a transition toward the Orthodox tradition, and I think that's interesting, and people would like to hear about that. Okay. Well, I'm currently learning to be the Dean of Graduate Studies at St. Stephen's University, and I'm the editor of CWR Magazine. I used to be a pastor for 20 years. So my backstory is that I grew up Baptist, then became a Mennonite minister, then planted a small C charismatic church that focused on people on the margins. And after 20 years of pastoring, I stepped back, did my PhD studies. And by the time I was finished there, I, I decided I wanted to get into school and academia. But I also decided at that point that it was time for me to make a shift to the Eastern Orthodox Church. And that's part of the journey. Can you tell us just briefly why you decided to make that switch? Why you felt that switch was an important one for you to make? Uh, sure. So it began for me when my views of God began shifting, and I was struggling with the idea of penal substitutionary atonement and eternal conscious torment. And both of these things, at the root of them, is this retributive God. And as that was unraveling, I encountered Archbishop Lazar Pahalo, who's this monk nearby me. For the next 10 years, he sort of mentored me in Orthodox theology, where he said, we don't believe God is retributive. We don't believe that the Father was punishing his son on the cross. And it's not necessary to believe in eternal conscious torment to be Orthodox in, in the formal sense. So, I bought into that over the course of 10 years, but I didn't make the shift until I also realized I was going to need the liturgical style services to get over some, uh, call it like nerve damage, emotional nerve <laughs> damage from revivalism and, and the renewal and where there was a lot of pressure to, you know, make God show up and how many will come forward and how many will go down and how many, and I'm like, oh, I just need something for my nervous system. And so that's when I made the shift, yeah. Okay, well, so that's, I mean, first of all, that would be a fascinating thing to talk about another day, penal substitutionary atonement, but it's, it's your views of God that began to change. And along with that, you know, we, we can presume that your ideas of the Bible also evolved or developed or changed. And first of all, is that true? Yeah, that is true. And it especially came with a crisis around what we sometimes call the toxic texts, where I could just simply no longer believe in that, that God literally commanded the genocide of the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. And passages like that, where I'm like, could the Abba, revealed by Jesus, have issued that command? And, and I, I felt like there's no way. And in the Orthodox tradition, they would say, well, of course not. 
don't be asinine about it. <laughs> There's, you know, and so for them, then this this caused me like a question about biblical authority. And they, so for them, they're like, well, well, hang on a second. Jesus Christ is the Word of God, and the Scriptures need to bow to the living God when He came in the flesh. So it's a very Christotelic, to use your language, approach to the Old Testament and the New Testament, for that matter, where where Jesus is has all authority. So the Word of God is Jesus. Yeah, I, I like. And, and do you call the Bible the Word of God too? I I like not to because in the Scriptures, the, the Logos, the Word of God, primarily seems to point to to Jesus Christ. And then secondarily, when the term the Word of God is used, it's not about the Scriptures in general, but it would be about covenant promises within the Scriptures. So, like, you have my word on this, you know, you have my promise on this, and my promise is found in my covenants, including the New Covenant. So, when we hear about the Word of God other than Jesus Christ Himself, my sense is that it's coming from, you know, it's the promises of God that we believe by faith. All right, so Word of God is not the Bible. I just heard 20,000 Protestants drop to the floor when you said that. Yeah, they would just need to show me any verse in the Bible that claims to be that. I, I like to say this, Pete. I believe that the Word of God is inspired, infallible, and inerrant. And when he was 18, he grew a beard. <laughs> Uh, Are you sure it's 18? No, it's hard to say. And (laughs) I know I couldn't have, but I was giving him the benefit of the doubt. Well, I have a a question just because, you know, this is the Bible for normal people. And you went right out of the gate with some some big words. Mm -hmm. Penal substitutionary atonement, retributive God. Maybe can you unpack some of that and maybe do it in a way where... You can talk about it from the perspective of, give it kind of a generous reading, and then maybe talk about how the Orthodox Church would disagree, and, and maybe some other options for or how to see the atonement, or how to see the death and resurrection of, of Jesus, rather, and how to see the uh, to see God. I'll do my best. So, I just, just to say, not to throw stones at the Protestants, I was one, and I grew up on this belief that the gospel is that God punished Jesus in your place for your sins. And in fact, I was an apologist for that point of view in my master, my MA thesis was on the nature of Christ's suffering and substitution. So, he was your substitute. And so, the idea behind this is that God cannot simply forgive sin, he must punish sin. He can either punish that sin in you forever in hell, or he can punish that sin on his son on the cross. And so, if you believe that God punished Jesus for you, then you can be saved and and you can receive God's forgiveness. That's like a crass version, and I will be told that I'm caricaturing it. I'm telling you, if I'm caricaturing it, then the millions of preachers who still preach that should... make an adjustment. (laughs) Yeah, you're caricaturing it for, let's say, certain experts, but for people. Yes. Normal people, you're absolutely not caricaturing it. That's right. This is what people stress and struggle over. So, okay. Right. Normal people and the mass of, of, let's say, evangelical preachers like I was. So, I began to look at that and I'm saying, well, wait a minute. Are we saying God is not free to forgive sin? Because even Hosea, that's the whole point of Hosea, that he is able to forgive without punishing and that it's called forgiveness because he's actually pardoning. This isn't a payment transaction. It's It's an actual pardon where he says, I won't punish. And that pronouncement comes from the cross. 
So then the question becomes, if God doesn't need to satisfy his wrath through violent punishment, then what's the point of the cross? Why did Jesus die? As if there's no other possibility (laughs) than, than this requirement for punishment. And so in the Eastern Orthodox Church, we say this, that Jesus died on the cross to defeat and overcome and overthrow death. This goes back to St. Athanasius, where Athanasius says, okay, God sees humankind descending into non-being. He sees us dying and ending up in the pit. And so, what is God to do? So, God takes on human flesh so that he can die, so that he can enter Hades, so that he can destroy Hades and rescue those who are there. This would be like Jesus' point of view when he says I'm gonna, he's, that he's binding the strong man, entering his house, and plundering his goods. So he goes into death, defeats death, and brings us back to life. That's why he, that's why he dies. Um, well, what about forgiveness? How is that? Well, by forgiving you. You know, when, when Pete forgives his children or his pets or whatever, you know, it's like he doesn't have to think about, well, who am I going to punish instead? Because I can't just forgive. If Pete's free to forgive, then certainly God is free to forgive. But I'm sorry, I'm laughing here only, I'm laughing with delight because when you put it that way, it's like, duh, it's rather obvious in a sense, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, God's not looking around. I need to punish somebody for my holiness. I don't know what else to do about this, right? So, yeah. Yeah. If my neighbor's kid comes and breaks my window... I may assume the cost of that breakage in order to forgive him, but I don't need to go spank my son so that I've got the the pound of flesh off my chest. God isn't like that. He's not that small. And so, for the Orthodox Church, I can be gracious to people who've grown up with penal substitutionary atonement, because I did, and I know it's a journey, and it's what we were given. And by the way, we weren't given it as an atonement theory. We were told it's the gospel and that anything else is is heresy. But, you know, from the orthodox point of view, uh, penal substitutionary atonement is the primary cause of atheism. I'm not even allowed to believe in it anymore <laughs> as an orthodox Christian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Is that what heaven looks like? I hope so. But, you, you know, there's other things like nationalism and all that we definitely don't want from the East. Don't just, like, stay away from that. So, it's not, you're not just saying that, you know, it's, okay, the, the purpose of the crucifixion and resurrection, you're not just saying it's not that. You're actually giving something in its place, which is life. Yes. Right? So, okay. Let, yeah. I, I've summarized it this way. This, this would help in 30 seconds, that it, it's a decisive victory and it's a definitive revelation. So, I'll back into it. The cross is a definitive revelation of God as self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. So, the cross shows us that God is love, according to 1 John. And it's a decisive victory over Satan, sin, and death. It's like Jesus wins and he gets the last word, and now he holds the keys of the gates of Hades. And and like, what do you think he'll do with them? Well, like, he opens them and and actually breaks them. And it's so, in that sense, we used to call this Christus Victor, right? I don't think that's an atonement theory, though. I think that's the gospel. Christ was the victor, he did win, you know? Well, I think, you know, and just not to get too nerdy here, but in Romans, it's through Adam that condemnation came. And I began reading that word condemnation, not as after death you're punished, but as death itself. Yes. That's the condemnation of Adam. 
And what Jesus did is he reversed that condemnation. Death is no longer the death sentence, so to speak. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. Hebrews 2 is like that, too. In it says that he took on human flesh to set us free from death and the fear of death through which Satan held us in bondage all of our lives. And that's it. That's what, so, what was I saved from? I'm saved from death, the fear of death, and the leverage the enemy had over me using death. That there's a proof text. Yeah. And then the, this, but you know, like you're, you're kind of citing Romans 5, and I just think more people need to spend more time in Romans 5. In this model, though, Romans 5 can be a problem if you don't notice that the translators have added of God when it says that Jesus came to save us from the wrath, and then the translators add what is in no manuscripts, the wrath of God. So they end up having Jesus saving you from God. And that's not it. Paul says God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. Like, there's not a record. But I've studied a lot of Pete Enns on this, and I, I'm of his school on the whole thing. So, so, so you got to finish that thought, though, Brad. So, what, what's the wrath? What is the wrath, if not of God? Why, did, why do they add that? Good question. So, wrath is the consequences of sin, which is death. And in, in fact, I think he's engaging Ecclesiasticus chapter 18. By the way, that was in all Bibles until the 1500s. It used to be called the Word of God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now it's in the Apocrypha, for Protestants at least, it's in the Apocrypha, right? Also called Ben Sirah. Right. So, yeah, all right. Right. And so, in chapter 18, it says that, you know, there's this, it's a type of the Messiah coming who, it says, who destroys the destroyer and overcomes the wrath. So, destroyer and wrath and Satan even becomes synonymous over time with the rabbis prior to the New Testament. Hmm. I think Paul's engaging that. God sends Jesus to overcome the wrath, to save us from the wrath, which is the wages of sin. Well, in, in chapter 1 of Romans 2, where, where the wrath of God is revealed, meaning God um, gave us over, gave them up. Yeah. Right. And, and that's, it's, it's the withdrawal of God. It's not the act of punishment of God, but the withdrawal of God that, that our, our actions have consequences, and the consequences are the wrath. Yeah. And I might even go so far as to say that if his mercy endures forever, it's not him switching the withdrawal button there. It's, it's us turning from the never-failing mercies and finding ourselves in that sense. Yes, he, consent, he gives us over in the sense of he consents to our defiance and its self-destructive consequences. But then, those consequences being the condemnation of death, he enters death to rescue us from it. And that's the gospel. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education 
and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in And you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction (laughs) level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Well, we're talking a lot about a specific issue, and this leads me to uh, maybe a bigger question, which is, what is the purpose of the Bible? What What is the function of Scripture? How is it supposed to give us life and to relate to us according to the Orthodox tradition. Okay. So, by way of contrast, I used to hear about the Bible as our final authority for faith and practice, and it was sort of our foundational canon. And then we were taught that, you know, others like the Catholics or the Orthodox, they would accumulate tradition on top of that, and that these traditions are the traditions of men, and really, we want to get back to the Bible. From an Orthodox point of view, The Bible is the product of the church. The church of Jesus Christ predates the Bible. In that sense, everything the church produces is the tradition. And the Bible is part of that tradition. The Bible is the apostolic witness of Christ, where the four Gospels are really central. But the scriptures as a whole, then, are taken as the inspired testimony of the people of faith about their journey. I, I've never, I get a lot of mileage out of, out of your statement, God let his children tell the story. And part of that story comes out in the scriptures. The point of the scriptures then is to point to Christ. We would also say that, you know, sometimes in the Protestant world, we would talk about the canon and we would refer to the canon of scripture. Well, as if the canon is all the books that are in the Bible, that's what makes them canonical is that they're in the Bible. <laughs> In, in the Eastern tradition, we say, actually, the, the term canon was first used of the canon of faith in the second century, which is the faith once delivered to the saints, which is to say, the gospel, summarized in passages like the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. That's the canon of faith, which then ends up being summarized in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. That's the canon of faith. Then canonical means which books so aligned with the gospel, the canon of faith, that we decided we need to include them as authoritative for us. So, to summarize all of that, the church gathered 
in the Holy Spirit conveys a canon of faith passed down by Jesus through the apostles and produces a, a canon of scriptures that align with that gospel. And that took a long time. The, the church as a whole, never mind the East, the church as a whole, we didn't even include, formally include the book of Revelation until 395 AD. That's like after the Nicene Creed and Apostles' Creed were finalized. That was the argument. Does Revelation align with the canon of faith? They're like, eh, not sure, not sure. Yes, of course. Well, I don't know. You know and, and then finally, they're like, yeah, it does actually. But that means the scripture is a, is, is, is a product of the church. So we say that a fair bit. Yeah, that's not popular either in Protestantism. Again, I, I don't mean, I'm just drawing out the contrast that yeah. it's the canon that created the church. I heard that, you know, in my Reformed Calvinist uh, training, you know, that was sort of a that's a non-negotiable element. That's just like so observably not true, though, historically, isn't it? I mean, if, if Christ lays the foundation of the church at the very latest on Pentecost, and then our first book is only written a decade later, it's like, how, how does the canon produce the church? You mean there was no church before Mark was written or, or Galatians or whatever, you know, your early books— Hey, normal people, Pete here. Just a quick break. First, if you like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes. I could back that up with plenty of Bible verses, but there's just no time. Also, consider supporting our work at Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, cheaper than the price of a very bad cup of coffee, you'll have access to videos, early announcements, book clubs, an active Slack group of kindred spirits, and more. And that's patreon.com forward slash the Bible for normal people. Finally, a huge thanks to our producers group at Patreon. They get on calls with us and give us great feedback. If you like what we're doing, thank them. If not, just blame Jared. So thank you to Ryan Morrison, Michelle Chantos, Dave Carlton, Kevin Meng, Teresa Thompson, Philip Gibson, Lelia Fry, Stephen Goulstone, John Thomas, and Michelle Casey. We couldn't do what we do without you. Now back to the podcast. Well, do, do you think do you think Revelation, the including of, of uh, the inclusion of the Book of Revelation in three ninety five? You said, yeah. Do you think that was a mistake? Uh, I s- or problematic? It's not a problem free decision. Um, it's say? not a problem free decision. So here's how they managed it. In in I have to look up the canons. Archbishop Lazar told me last week, and he said you have to look it up in the councils. It'll be in the canons of the councils. He said there was real hesitancy in the West, in the Latin West, to include Hebrews, and in the Greek East to include Revelation, and they kind of compromised with each other by including both. Like, that's scandalous to me. <laughs> but um, So, here's the deal. If the creed is finalized in, in the 380s, which it was, I think it's 383, the creed is finalized. That means this is your canon of faith. This is your doctrinal statement, but Revelation's not yet accepted in the canon. And in fact, Gregory of Nazianzus, who was the chairman of that second council that finalized the creed, he, he just said that this, should, this book should not be in the canon. Don't do it. Why? And, and Violence? No, it was to do, well, a few things. One is, first of all, no one knew what it meant. <laughs> like, um, like, like, no, really. By within one generation of it being written, there were arguments like, we're, we're not sure what it means anymore. And uh, second, there were some key passages in it that looked really suspiciously uh, Gnostic. So, for example, the 144,000 who had not defiled themselves with a woman. It's like, what's that mean? Are we saying that 
you know, you have to be a virgin or you're defiled. That's kind of Gnostic. And then that famous line from the end of the book where it says, if anyone adds to this book, you know, you'll be whatever. And if you take away from this book, well, that's a classic Gnostic formula. So they're like, ugh. And not only that, the heretics were using it more than them. Well, Brett, before you go on, can you define Gnostic? <laughs> oh, no. Um, well, there was, That's one of those big words. Oh, my goodness. So, Gnostic was a, a large umbrella word for a big group of heretical Christians. I'd still call them Christians, you know, but because heresies were all sort of in-house in those days. You didn't kick people out so easily. Oh, uh, the good old days. The Gnostics believed they had special knowledge and um, the special knowledge, in, like secrets, and, and uh, instead of a public gospel... And that these secrets were sort of part of this dualism that really despised the human body. And it was about your spirit escaping from the body. And so, some of the Gnostics would say, so the solution is to be really ascetic, like don't have sex. And other Gnostics are like, yeah, well, you may as well, no, it's better to just burn out your body. So, have sex everywhere. <laughs> you know, so, you've got a lot of different kinds of Gnostics. Well, if Christians were worried that Gnostics had written the book of Revelation, or at least that they're, the, they're, they're using Revelation to their advantage, then they're really hesitant to include it. But they did include it, and here's the conditions. And, and we break these conditions all the time. By including Revelation after the Nicene Creed, that means you don't get to use Revelation to get doctrine. <laughs> the doctrine's already finalized, including the eschatology, which is the doctrine of end times. So, the Nicene Creed, here's its eschatology. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. That's it. That's the dogma. Everything else, you can have interesting conversations and conferences and debates, but you don't get to derive any dogma from the book of Revelation. Okay, I can hear every Protestant in the world listening to this right now who went to seminary yeah, saying, yeah. why was I never taught this? Yeah. Well, because we, we have the Bible. Why do we need the tradition? You know? So, um, then the question is, well, what do you use Revelation for? Well, I've got some great ideas, and the church did too. We use it as a call to worship the Lamb on His throne, and we use it as a call to faithfulness against either the seduction or the persecution of the empire. So, it's a real critique of empire and the way it tries to pressure us into denouncing Christ or seduce us and co-opting us like they do right now. And so, it's an important book and I'm glad it's included, but you just don't use it to sort out when Jesus is coming back or what the end times are like. We already have a, a, a chapter for that. It's called 1 Corinthians 15. That's our strongest telescope into the future when every enemy comes under Christ's feet. He hands it all over to his Father, and God is all in and all. Okay, so how can we annoy more people here? Let's think about a good topic. Oh, I have one. Hey, uh, talk to us about the value or the non-value, I don't know, of literal or let's say historical readings of the Bible. Okay. Because I know there's a large allegorical tradition in the Orthodox tradition, so. Yeah. So, again, I'll contrast what that even means. So, when I was studying hermeneutics in 1982, it was the literal, grammatical, historical approach. And what we were told is, here was the rule we were given. I don't know about you, but we were given this rule. Unless you can't, unless you can't, you must read the Bible literally. And what we meant was that what the words meant, what they actually said in a... Um, 
not symbolically, not allegorically, not spiritually, but un- unless, you, unless you're forced into it. So literal meant non-figurative interpretation whenever possible, which just isn't a rule that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. Certainly Paul doesn't follow it. And then we were also told, oh, and there's these other guys like Origen, and they, got, they were excessive with allegory. They like to allegorize everything. And I found out that wasn't fair. So around, remember I mentioned Gregory of Nazianzus, him and another guy, Basil the Great. These two guys were the late 300s. They drew together all the writings of, of this great church father, Origen, from about 200. So this is like 100 years after the Bible's done, right? And Origen, is, he's got this profound way of approaching Scripture that I think, in general, the Orthodox follow. So they would say, just like humans have a body, a soul, and a spirit, we should approach the Bible as body, soul, and spirit. And they would say, we'll call the body the literal sense of Scripture, the soul the moral sense of Scripture, and the spirit the gospel sense or the, the spiritual sense of Scripture. So, Origen says, yeah, the first thing we want to do is get the literal sense. And what he meant by that was not just you take everything literally. (laughs) What he meant is, first of all, you want to get the very best manuscripts together so that you can compile a really, your most accurate Hebrew and Greek text. And then you, you go through that text and you begin to distinguish which you, you begin to look at genres. So, to, to read Genesis literally means taking myth seriously. To read Psalm, the Psalms literally means, more like literarily, right, is, is to understand this as poetry and treat it as such. To read apocalyptic literature like Daniel or Revelation, you d- to read it literally is to see that it's symbolic and figurative and so on. And then he even says, you need to start... you. Reading it literally means identifying which books are fiction and which are nonfiction. So that's the literal sense. And then um, I'll just quickly do the, the, the moral sense isn't just what are the morals of the story or what are the character lessons of, of Daniel or Joseph. It's, no, he says the moral, the moral sense is a fulfillment of 2 Timothy 3, where it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. That it's, it's about what will make me more Christ-like? What will grow me as a disciple? That's the moral sense. It's sort of like how to read it as, as a growing disciple. And then third, the spiritual sense isn't just allegory or spiritualizing. It's basically saying, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus showed his disciples how all the law and the prophets point to him. That's the spiritual sense. So we need to go ask, how does the story of Joseph point to Jesus? How does the Exodus point to Jesus? How does, and so on. And that's kind of how I approach scripture today. I think that's how most Orthodox and, and we, and of course we also, we always check how the fathers did it because we want to have good, we want to follow a model for doing this instead of just doing our own thing. So you mentioned the earlier we were talking about Christ as the Word of God, yeah, and we talked a little bit about tradition. But you know, one argument I often hear is, well, that's circular because if Christ is the Word of God, where are you getting that picture of Christ from? Isn't it from the Bible? And so, really, it 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 always does come back around to the Bible. So when you talk about Christ as the Word of God, 
uh, to whom are you referring, and how do you have access to that information if not through the scriptures? Well, yeah, so that would be a horrendous assumption is that the only thing we know about Jesus is through a book. It's like, really? Have you not met him? <laughs> what the Bible says, and I, I think most Orthodox would, would see it this way, but I, I'm going to be a Biblicist for a moment because I know we have to sometimes just operate from those assumptions. What the Bible says is, number one, when, when Jesus was speaking in, in John chapter 16, he doesn't say, I have much more to say to you, more than you can know now bear, but when the Bible comes, it will guide you into all truth. What it says is, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So, one way that we know the truth of who Jesus is, and I think that's the truth he's talking about, the truth of Jesus is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Second, the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus through the apostles who write the New Testament and also who see how the Old Testament points to Jesus. So, yes, we do have the Holy Spirit and we have the apostolic um, use of Scripture. And then third, Paul makes this outrageous statement. He doesn't say the Bible is the pillar and foundation of the truth. He actually says, like it or not, the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So, when I'm saying about how do I know about Jesus, did I really pick up a Bible first and that's where I met Jesus? It's like, most people don't. Some people meet, encounter Christ, first of all, directly, like a 12-step alcoholic I met today. She's only been in a church once in her life, and she's never read the Bible, but she met Christ in a profound encounter and has been walking with him for 10 years. So, there's this the encounter with the living Christ through the Holy Spirit, but also, um, in my case, Yes, I had a Bible early on, but prior to that, I, why did I have a Bible? Because I was in a Christian community with Christian parents who taught me to pray and who gave me my first Bible. So, I encountered Christ in the community. So, we would say this, that there's a three-legged stool of interdependent authority all pointing to Jesus Christ, and that is the, the, the Scriptures, the Church, and the Holy Spirit. And if you take if you try to prop up your your knowledge and convictions about Christ on any one of those legs, you're going to be way off balance. But there's something about the interdependent witness that really, it gives me a place to, to, to sit. And I'm like, oh, when I know that the, the scriptures and the church and the spirit are in agreement on something, I'm like way more confident than if I have, a, you know, just a Bible or just a Holy Spirit or just a, a community, because any one of those can be like a warm, fuzzy feeling, a proof text, or a cult, you know? Well, Brad, let me ask you another question, going in a different direction here, about historical criticism. Mm -hmm. And what my first sort of introduction to this was years ago, I I was a co-author on a book, The Bible and the Believer, which had myself as a Protestant, um, a Roman Catholic scholar, and also a Jewish scholar. And the Jewish scholar asked, well, how about having an Orthodox perspective in this book as well? And the Roman Catholic scholar said, without any animosity at all, he said, they don't really do this. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, and that's, and I, that's, I, that's sort of been borne out in my own experience. And, you know, maybe just clarify if that's in fact the case and maybe help us understand, like, what role history might play in an in Orthodox interpretation, whether 
historical criticism, engaging tools of historical uncovering, whether those are good things or they're fine or they're not that important or they're wrong or anything, whatever, whatever it is, it's just like, it'd be nice to just sort of know what's going on. Sure. Um, I'm not entirely positive. <laughs> um, here's what I know is that I, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'll use my spiritual father, Archbishop Lazar, as an example. Um, when you, w- when you would approach him with that kind of stuff, he would say, well, of course, and thank you. <laughs> so it's not, it, he's, he's an avid reader of historical criticism and he will, he will rattle off what he's read. I just don't know that the Orthodox are producing that stuff, but they're definitely reading it. So they wouldn't be, like, so when I hear him talking about the fall of Jericho, for example, he's going to cite books by historical critics that were not produced by Orthodox people. So it feels like, at least in the case of him and, and me and other Orthodox that I know, uh, we're very friendly to that stuff, and yet um, we've really relied on others to do it. And I'm comfortable with that. We Maybe we have a different contribution to make, and and we should let the real experts handle that angle. We're going to be coming to the end of our time shortly, but I had one more question for you. What would be one piece of advice that you would give to, uh, you know, we want to be aware of, of a multitude of voices in the Christian community. We can learn from all sorts of traditions. And so what would be something that you, a blind spot you might point out for us or uh, a practice to start or something to consider? I'll say a couple quickies. One is that we've really discovered that gospel is the drama of redemption. And then what we do is we look at how does each scripture fit into that drama? And how can we step into that drama ourselves? So, for example, when we read the Psalms, we understand them as prayers that we're meant to pray together as people living the human condition and in the context of this drama of redemption. So, I pray the Psalms all the time. I try to pray them every day. But I pray them as Adam locked out of paradise. I pray them as the disciples locked out of the tomb. And then I pray them as as one rejoicing when I discover the resurrection has happened. And this happens as a, I live I live into the drama using the scriptures in in a prayerful way, and especially in the community when we do the liturgy. The other thing is that um, the scriptures do not only reveal the nature of God; they reveal the nature of humanity. And so, one book I really recommend is by Archbishop Lazar Pahalo, the spiritual father of mine. He's the monk where, where I serve at a monastery. And he's written a book called The Mirror of Scripture. The Old Testament is about you. And he talks about how, yes, we do see God revealed in the Old Testament as gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. But a lot of the texts, even ones that claim that God is retributive and wrathful and violent, we would see more as these are a revelation of the human condition, including the ways we project our violence onto God. And thank God, Christ has come along to show us that those texts are about us and not about him. And um, so that, that, that's a book I recommend, uh, Lazar Puhalo, P-U-H-A-L-O. And it's the mirror of scripture, the Old Testament is about us. Or you, about you, I think. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, we are at the end of our time, Brad, but maybe can you say uh, a word of where, where can people find more of, 
of you online? They could come to bradjersak.com, B-R-A-D-J-E-R-S-A-K. And from there, there's links to the other places they can find me. I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, and the, the usual suspects like that. But that's a good place to discover me to begin with. Are you working on anything at this point, Brad? Uh, yeah. My last book was called A More Christ-Like God, A More Beautiful Gospel. And it's about the cruciform or cross-shaped nature of Christ. And I'm currently doing a follow-up book that should be available in the spring called A More Christ-Like Way, A More Beautiful Faith. And that'll be more about how God's people are to be cruciform or cross-shaped as we uh, emulate the one we follow. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on with us. Absolutely, Brad. Great having you. My pleasure. I'd love to do it again someday. Alrighty. Well, thanks everyone for listening to another yet another episode of The Bible for Normal People. We uh, had a great conversation with Brad, and again, uh, please pick up his book, A More Christ-Like God, to get more of uh, that refreshing take on God and the Bible and, and Jesus, especially. And speaking of books, Pete, there's something forthcoming. Oh, yes. Well, you can pre-order my next book called How the Bible Actually Works. And it was a fun book to write. I'm very excited about it. It's out officially like end of January, beginning of February. But you can pre-order it now. And if you do, there are little perky prizes for you, depending on how many copies you pre-order. Pre-order 10. What do I care? But uh, there are little things in there that you might be interested in, like a lost chapter, a special podcast episode about the book and uh, some other stuff, too. So I'm really excited about it. So where do they go to get this? Oh, they go to our website, don't they? PeteEnds.com or TheBibleForNormalPeople.com. And you cannot avoid the pop-up window. Yeah, just wait about seven seconds and you will be you will be blasted. A seventh of a second, and it's right there. And your computer will blow up if you don't pre-order it within three seconds. Well, that's good. Just so you know. At least we're not... Yeah, we're, we're, we're at the place now where we threaten people. That's how much Jesus wants you to order this book. All right, we got, we got to go. All right, folks. Thank you.